Bellas, what up and happy holidays. Welcome to episode 19 of the 2018 edition of the MFHT cast. I am the commish coming at you with a multi-part pod today, multiple segments. Uh, we're going to do a few different things here today on Christmas Eve. Uh, first off, in this segment, I'm going to take a look at the DK side league in which we had eight guys playing. I am also, of course, going to break down our championship matchup in the main league. And if I have time and uh, able to break away from family stuff uh, for for enough time today, I'm going to offer up a few holiday grievances uh, that I'd like to share with you this year at Christmas. Uh, all right, so let's jump in on the side league. Just kind of overarching thoughts on the slate this week. I thought that this week was a little bit tougher than the previous couple weeks for a couple reasons. One, uh, QB pricing was more spread out, so that gave us a, a big decision of whether we wanted to pay up at quarterback or pay down at quarterback, whereas the last couple weeks it was really kind of, you know, pricing was so close together, it was you could kind of go any direction you wanted to go. We also had, of course, you know, some really high-quality running backs in the mix at different price points. I'll talk more about that as we go. But the other thing that I thought made this thing made this week a little more difficult was the fact that uh, there were some really appealing wide receivers in the 8K range, which we hadn't really seen um, in the last couple of weeks. I thought the, the high-end receivers the last couple of weeks were pretty easy to move off of. This week, I think there were a few guys that, that really stood out in that range that we had to consider. And then... Finally, you know, how you chose and how you wanted to attack that Pittsburgh uh, Saints game, which had the highest projected total on the slate, turned out to be really consequential at the end of the day. And we'll talk more about that as we dig into how different guys chose to approach it. So in eighth place, we'll start off Chestnuts 531, our boy Nuts with a lowly 101.54 points, just got blown out of the water this week. Uh, Nuts, I think, was the only one of us that chose to pay, uh, chose to pay up for three uh, running backs over 7K. He paid up for Zeke, paid up for Nick Chubb, paid up for Saquon. I, I thought all of those guys were really strong plays this week. Um, I was definitely playing Zeke. There was no way I was moving off Zeke at 9K, given the question marks we had around Gurley's health, given the question marks we had around CMC's role in that offense uh, and a team that's kind of shutting it down for the season. Um, you know, thought he was clearly the superior play to either of those two guys. And then I liked Nick Chubb and Saquon quite a bit. So, you know, didn't work out for nuts uh, investing, you know, close to 50% of his roster or 50% of his cap in those three roster spots. Um, other bad break for nuts. There was uh, he played Eric Ebron. He was the only one he got injured during that game. And, you know, at the time had three receptions for 28 yards, 5.8 points. Um, and, you know, just didn't obviously get there with the, with the injury. Played Dak at QB, played Chris Hogan as a salary saver at wide receiver. I actually thought this was kind of a sucker play this week. Um, you know, once we had the news on Josh Gordon, it was really easy to look to Chris Hogan at only 3,200, I believe it was. He had zero points. Um, some things that were red flags for me on Chris Hogan. One is that the Patriots were not likely to just sub in Chris Hogan for Josh Gordon. It was likely going to be a, a mix of Hogan, Cordero Patterson, and um, Philip Dorsett. And then the other thing is, as big home favorites against Buffalo, that is an easier team to run on than it is to pass on. I thought this was a 
pretty clear spot where the Pats were going to go run heavy. I think they want to go run heavy this time of year anyways, particularly with Brady, you know, looking like he's slowed down a little bit at 41 years old and Gronk looking like he has just nothing left in the tank whatsoever. So, you know, rough play there for nuts um, and, and kind of rough week overall for him. But again, I, I really don't, uh, don't mind at all those three running backs that he played. I mean, I think that that was, that was a situation where each of those three guys could have gotten you 30 points and you're looking at 90 points from those three spots and, you know, you need some things to come together otherwise on your roster. So anyways, too bad for nuts. In seventh place, Bettis, nuts on your chin, 141.58 points. Um, spent down at running back, played Tariq Cohen, who had one of his worst games of the season, Marlon Mack and Jamal Williams, who I think Jamal Williams was a really strong play for Green Bay, knowing that he was going to, you know, basically just play the whole game. He's like the only running back they had. I mean, they signed Capri Bibbs, I think, at the beginning of the week, and then somebody else off their practice squad. So anytime we have a running back that's just locked into pretty much every snap in the game, that's that's a situation we want to go to. Um Bettis played DeAndre Hopkins at wide receiver. Thought that was a really strong play. I mentioned those wide receivers in the 8K range. I thought DeAndre Hopkins was one of the the strongest plays. Played Juju uh, also in the 8K range. Uh, He had a great game. You know, that fumble at the end was obviously, you know, really disappointing for him. You know, felt bad for the guy on the sideline. I mean, it's it's, sometimes it's, uh, you know, easy to think of these guys as just sort of cyborgs because they're professional football players. But Juju's still, you know, you know, he's a young guy. I mean, he's closer to our kids' age than he is our age, you know. So felt bad for him there. We'll, we'll be good to see him bounce back, though. I'm sure he will. One thing that I want to call out on Bettis is, well, a couple things here. Uh, Bettis was the only one that played the Cowboys D. Thought that was a really good play uh, in the mid-2K range. One thing that I just want to note, note here on his roster is the Marlon Mack play, who is 50% owned in our league. 10.8 points um, at 5,500. Marlon Mack, so there's different types of running backs, and, and, and this is something that you hear analysts in the industry talk about. There's different types of running backs. The guys that we want to target at running back as much as possible are the ones that, they, that are referred to as being game flow independent. Basically means they are going to be on the field regardless of situation. Um, the teams ahead, they're going to get the ball. The teams behind, they're going to get work in the passing game. They're in the red zone. They're going to get carries and targets. Uh, you know, think Todd Gurley, think Ezekiel Elliott, think CMC. Obviously, you know, those game flow independent running backs are going to be priced up because of their role. Saquon Barkley is another one. Marlon Mack is a guy that, you know, we would call a touchdown and yardage back. So in other words, he's going to get his fantasy production from piling up yards and scoring touchdowns. He's not going to have much of a role in the passing game. He had one reception in this game. And so with guys like that, the, the challenge is, is that if their team gets behind, they're likely to just get scripted right out of the game. And with the Giants sort of surprisingly jumping out to a to an early lead in that game, that kind of killed Marlon Mack's value. So when we go to running backs that are, you know, yardage and touchdown guys, I think we want to be very confident that game flow is going to be in their favor. And, you know, at 5,500, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't totally kill you. It's just something that we need to be aware of. Uh, when we think about the types of running backs that we want to play. Uh, in sixth place, Tim, 146.86 points. He was the only one of us to play Baker at QB. Baker had a great game, three passing touchdowns, 284 yards, and a long, slow stare down of Hugh Jackson at the end of the game. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I mean, I like Baker. I like the fact that he has this big chip on his shoulder, but like, 
I sort of don't get like how he feels like he got done dirty by Hugh Jackson. Like Hugh Jackson got fired and then went and got another job and Baker's all pissed off at him. It's like, come on, dude, let it go a little bit. All right. Uh, Tim was the only one of us that played Christian McCaffrey, who I read this morning, the Panthers ran 92 plays, which is an insane number of plays. And he was on the field for 83 of them. Um, I thought there was some question going in as to whether or not they might back off on his workload, given that their season's done and obviously they're not going to want to get him injured. That, you know, was obviously not the case. And and playing Christian McCaffrey over Zeke ended up being, you know, uh, you know, potentially a difference maker. Um, Tim also played Adam Thielen and Julian Edelman. So paid up at wide receiver in a couple spots. And neither of those guys had great games. 13 points for Thielen, 19 for Edelman. I mean, 19 for Edelman is kind of about what you'd expect. I mean, that's kind of where he lives. Tim also played Sterling Shepard, um, who got 20 points. That was, you know, I, I've talked about Sterling Shepard the last couple of weeks. The guys just drive me crazy. I'm, I'm kind of happy to not play him at this point. I think that was a bit of an outlier result. And then Pat's D at home against Josh Allen, I think was a really strong play for Tim. Um, Tim also played Marlon Mack, you know, didn't get there. Played Taylor Gabriel, didn't get there. So just not, not quite enough juice for Tim this week. In fifth place, service, 152.98 points, was one of the three people in our league to play Andrew Luck. I mean, he's all obviously very safe at QB, especially at home. Played Zeke, um, you know, again, thought that was a strong play. Played Cohen, he busted. Service was one of the three guys that played Kyle Rudolph. Um, you know, just a huge game from him. I think that this was a, you know, a pretty significant outlier result for Rudolph. Obviously, he got the Hail Mary at the end of the first half. Uh, but if you look at his target logs from the last few games, he had had three, five, and three targets. So, you know, you're playing him at, 3,400, I think it was, you're certainly not expecting 34 points, you know, but if he could get up in the, you know, 10 to 12 range, I think you're pretty, pretty happy with that. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but one thing that you could do on DraftKings is you could click on the player's name and it'll open up the player card. And then from there, you can click on their game logs and it'll show you all of their touches and targets from the whole season. Um, that's a pretty useful tool if you want to see how guys are being used in their offense over the course uh, of the last month or so, which is, is, you know, can be valuable information. Service got caught with the Tevin Coleman sucker play. Um, only put up 5.1 points, 51 rushing yards. You know, he had a big game last week at home, but uh, there were a couple of pretty significant red flags here. One is that he had a big game, but he only got 11 carries. Two is that all week, uh, the coaches in Atlanta were talking about wanting to see this kid, Brian Hill, play. And we know that Atlanta is a team that wants to run two backs out no matter what. They don't tend to throw the ball to their running backs very much. And look, we know that coaches lie all the time and we could get caught up in coach speak. But given the given the way that the Falcons have used their running backs all year, like it's pretty clear that they do not ever want to feature Tevin Coleman as a 20-carry guy. So... um. Not a great play there, unfortunately. Also played Nelson Aguilar, which ended up really working out. Played Brandon Cooks, which did not. Bob Woods was the guy to go to in that game, apparently. But, you know, I'm never going to, you know, dog you for playing a, a Rams wide receiver. So also played Juju. In fourth place was me. And I went with what I thought would be kind of a unique roster. Bartley kind of had a similar setup. Um, Robbie Anderson and only 4,500, I thought was the best value play on the slate, given the way that they've been using him and targeting him the last few weeks and not 
raising his price. Um, he hasn't had a great season, but he's been on fire the last few weeks. Um, he got 32 points, just a monster game, nine receptions, 140 yards. I also really liked Elijah McGuire on the Jets offense at 4,700. Um, I talked about the different types of roles that running backs play. And, and Elijah McGuire with um, Crowell out and with you know Bilal Powell long dead this season – Elijah McGuire set up as having that game flow independent role. So even though he's, you know, he's by no means a great back, really liked his role for 4,700. And I also played Zeke and Nick Chubb. You know, I mentioned, I thought those guys were just absolute smash plays um, given, you know, Zeke's role in matchup. And, and Chubb is, you know, he's one of those yardage and touchdown guys. Uh, I thought home against Cincinnati, he had a chance to get there. He got there on yardage just didn't get the touchdowns. And so that's, you know, that's the risk that you take playing one of these guys is that if they don't get in the box, um, they're not going to have a ceiling type score. So 16.5 points is a little disappointing from Chubb. Um, but going back to the jets, once I knew I wanted to play, uh, uh, well, just one other quick thing here. Once I, one of the reasons I ended up playing Elijah McGuire, the other guy that I really liked in this price range was Sony Michelle on the Pats, And he had a good game. I think he ended up with 20 points. The reason I went, or one of the reasons I went with McGuire over Michelle was I didn't want to have two of these yardage and touchdown backs. I mean, I already knew I was playing Nick Chubb. So in that third, in that flex spot, I knew I wanted uh, a back that was going to be game flow independent. So Elijah McGuire fit that role. Um, once we knew that Lamar Miller was out, Alfred Blue at 4,500 also fit that role. He's not a guy I was real excited to play going on the road in Philly. So um, it ended up being McGuire for me. And once I knew that I was playing both Robbie Anderson and Elijah McGuire, it made a lot of sense to go to Sam Darnold at 4,900 at QB. A guy I haven't played all year, but he has really been coming on the last few weeks. And, you know, if I if I think Robbie Anderson's going to play well, if I think Elijah McGuire is going to play well, stands to reason that Sam Darnold's going to play well, too. And then once I knew I had those three, I mentioned that there were several wide receivers that I liked in that 8K range. I thought it made a lot of sense to plug Devontae Adams in there with them and just go with that full game stack. And... I mean, that that part of my roster couldn't have worked out better. So this ended up being kind of a frustrating week for me, a disappointing week in the sense that, um, you know, I got the game stack right. I got I got 100 points out of those four players. And so, you know, going into the week, if you would have told me you're going to get 100 points out of your game stack, plus you've got Zeke, plus you've got Nick Chubb, I would have penciled those two in for 50 combined points. And then whatever else happens on my roster is pretty gravy from there. Obviously, the running backs didn't get it done. I also played Evan Ingram at tight end. Um, thought he was a strong play with Odell Beckham out. That worked out pretty well. Isaiah McKenzie is my salary saver. He wide receiver for the Bills. He had a really rough game, only one reception for eight yards. Um, he was only 3,900. He got hurt in the middle of the game and missed, I want to say, about two quarters of that game. He did get eight targets, and it just, it was, you know, just did not connect. Um, it was kind of like the Chris Godwin game from a couple weeks ago where he got one, one catch on 10 targets. You know, I'm not going to feel bad about paying 3,900 for eight targets. Um, obviously, you know, attaching, attaching a guy to Josh Allen who is exciting but wildly inaccurate right now and, and very raw, you know, you know, you're bringing that floor into, the conversation, but you know, I'm not going to feel bad about going there to save, save that salary on my roster to get some of these higher price players that I wanted to play that I think were really good plays. 
the big mistake that I made was at defense. Um, and this is the second week in a row where defense has kind of skewed me a little bit. Um, last week playing the Rams D at home against the Eagles. I don't think I made a mistake this week. I do think I made a mistake playing saints D I thought about Cowboys D and could have got their salary wise. I think that was the better play. I think obviously Patriots at home against Josh Allen was a better play. There's a couple different ways to approach defense. I mean, one kind of obviously is, you know, just attack a bad quarterback, especially a young mistake prone quarterback. I mean, that's always going to be, a smart way to go on defense uh, regardless of how it ends up playing out. Another way to go on defense is to target defenses in games that project to be a little bit high scoring, which I know is a little bit counterintuitive, but the way that defensive scoring works on DraftKings is that most of your points come from sacks and turnovers. Um, I went with the saints because they're an extremely aggressive defense. They've been getting after the quarterback like crazy the last few weeks. And I thought playing at home, they could generate some sacks and force Ben into some bad throws and, and create some turnovers. Obviously that did not happen. Um, and that game ended up really hurting me quite a bit. If I had played Cowboys D, I would have scored eight more points on my roster than I did, which still would not have been good enough to get me into the money in our side league. But I went back and looked at other tournaments where I entered the same lineup and it did end up costing me somewhere in the order of a uh, of hundred bucks in potential winnings. So that stings a little bit. So, you know, live and learn from that mistake. Anyway, moving on in third place, Tyser, we'll talk more about him in another segment of our show. Fired in his lineup late. Uh, once again, as he does, um, made some sharp plays though, you know, Elijah McGuire Browns D I thought was a really good play. Only got him four points, but that was a really good play. Um, I think if you were going to play Browns D probably pairing him with Nick Chubb made a lot of sense, uh, played Marlon Mack talked about him, played Jamal Williams, you know, really, really good play there. Deandre Hopkins and Alshon Jeffrey coming back on the other side. So pairing two opposing wide receiver one run heavy in this spot. And they did Brady had kind of a rough, actually a really rough game, 126 yards, one tud and two INTs. Um, at 5,900, you know, there were some other ways you could have gone there at quarterback. So didn't quite get there for Tice, but but a really nice roster overall. In second place, we have Bartley at 175 points. His roster was very similar to mine. You know, not surprising considering that we, you know, tend to look at a lot of the same resources and, and kind of have a similar research process, similar uh, approach to, to roster construction. So he played Darnold, Anderson, Stack, did not include Elijah McGuire and did not run it back with, with – um, Devonte Adams played Chubb and Elliott also played Marlon Mack um, and Alshon played Evan Ingram. Like I did played Bob Woods on the Rams. He was the only one of us to go there. 28.4 points. Awesome game for Bob. Um, and you know, what's cool about these Rams wide receivers is Bob Woods was only 6,600 um, because of, you know, the presence of Todd Gurley, who obviously didn't play this week, but because of the presence of Gurley and because of the fact that, Neither Woods nor Cooks is really like the true alpha dog wide receiver. Like they're both kind of co-wide receiver ones. It keeps their price a little bit depressed compared to guys like, you know, DeAndre Hopkins or Devontae Adams or Julio Jones that, you know, we know that they're the number one wide receiver. And these guys can put up scores that that rival those players. So, you know, great play there. Really like that, especially, you know, getting some action late. Um, also great play Falcons D going up against Tyler Heineke in his first start uh, for the Panthers. Uh, Falcons D, you know, has obviously not been a good real-life defense this year, but, uh, you know, as I was saying a moment ago, anytime you can go up against 
you know, a young QB that is likely to be mistake prone, especially a guy making his first NFL start, you know, that's a recipe for success. So really good play there by Bartley. And then in first place, the newest member of our league, Travis Barsotti with 181.48 points, played Andrew Luck at QB, played Zeke, uh, played Alvin Kamara, his boy. He was the only one of us that played Alvin Kamara. And, you know, in retrospect, this is a play that I wish I had considered more. I've been off Alvin Kamara um, and Michael Thomas as well because of their price and because of their role in their offense relative to other guys that they're priced around. Kamara was priced down this week relative to where he had been at 7,400. And I think at 7,400 at home playing on that fast track, that's a, that's a much better play than he was, you know, in, in recent weeks where he'd been up over 8k and kind of right around, you know, guys like McCaffrey and, and Zeke and Saquon. Um, In this case, it was, you know, do you want to play Kamara or Nick Chubb? And, you know, that's a, that's a different uh, equation. Also played AB who just went nuts. I mean, AB has had, you know, by his standards, a, a kind of a down season. I mean, I don't know if you can even call it a down season, just not a great season by his standards, but just went absolutely crazy in this game. 14 receptions, 185 yards. Um, it's just a vintage AB performance, 47.5 DK points. And as I said, at the outset, you know, how you chose to attack this Saints Steelers game really ended up being a big difference maker. We didn't have a lot of ownership on that game, partly because, you know, most of the pieces are high priced and and it's hard to know what to expect from that Steelers team right now. The Saints offense had not been clicking. Their defense had been playing really well. So I think there was a lot of reasons to avoid it. But if you wanted to just go after a game that you thought was going to be high scoring and grab a couple pieces of it, I think that made a lot of sense. Also really like the Calvin Ridley play uh, that Varsody made. That worked out really well for him. And, uh, you know, we knew going in that Julio was a little bit banged up, so we might anticipate a little bit larger role for Ridley. He only got three receptions, but did get 90 yards and a touch. So nice play there. Rounded it out with Kyle Rudolph at tight end. Talked about his monster game. And Bears D scoring seven points on the road against the 49ers. So great win for Barsotti. It's great to see different guys, you know, putting up good scores. Uh, the, you know, the whole point of this side league guys is to, is to have fun. It's fun to have a little bit of money on the line. I think it makes it a little bit more competitive than it would be if we weren't playing for any stakes at all. So um, great to see different people having success. Certainly great to see Bettis and nuts in seventh and eighth place. I mean, if I'm not going to win, you know, that is absolutely going to make my day seven days out of seven. So anyways, uh, hope you guys enjoyed it this week. We're going to run it back again in week 17. I think week 17 is going to be a ton of fun with a lot of uh, meaningful games, especially in the afternoon. Um, so more to come on that. We'll keep it, you know, keep it standard $5 buy-in top two payout. Hope we get another group of, you know, at least six to eight of us. It's been a lot of fun. That's all I have on the side league, guys. I will be back soon with another segment on our main league. And hopefully, if, uh, as I said, if I have time, get to some holiday grievances for you guys. All right. Cheers, guys. Fellas, all right. Welcome back. Let's get right into our action in the main league where we had our third place game 
and our championship game, and we have a new champion in MFHC. So congratulations to one Mr. Ron Tyser, the uh, future recipient of the Panther and champion of our league, and I'm sure he will not fail to let us know about that uh, for the next 12 months. So let's take a look at these matchups. So first I want to take a look at our, our uh, third-place matchup between Eric and, and the Vatos, which I, I kind of forgot to do a preview of last week, but whatever. We don't get that much about the third place matchup, but we'll give them some love anyways. Uh, so just a, just a reminder, 25 bucks on the line. So winner of this one gets their buy-in back on the season. Uh, Eric took it down once with 171.71 points. Vatos put up 144. So good scores by both guys. Eric with a great game. Uh, Deshaun Watson, big, big, big game up there in Philly. 339 yards, passing two rushing touchdowns, two passing touchdowns, 44 points. Michael Thomas showed up big in that um, Pittsburgh Saints game, game-winning touchdown. Tyler Lockett had a nice game. Dante Pettis, I thought, was a really nice play. He got hurt early, only put up four points. Joe Mixon and Nick Chubb put up respectable scores. Travis Kelsey, not a ceiling game, but nine points, not going to kill you. Robbie Anderson, 30 points. Chargers D 10 points. So this is what we've seen from Eric all year, right? Like you get a couple big scores and then just solid across the board. I mean, Dante Pettis only with four points, but he would have put up a much bigger game, you know, probably in the somewhere in the teens um, had he stayed healthy. And he, he looks like a pretty good young wide receiver. So nice win for Eric uh, or, or nice score for Eric there and, and really a nice season for him. On the Vato side, huge game from Aaron Rodgers. 442 yards passing, two rushing touchdowns, two passing TDs, 55 points. Juju, nice game, 20 points. Devontae Adams, nice game, 20 points. And that's really been the core of Nuts' team all season long is the, the Rodgers to Devontae Adams stack. They got an overtime touchdown that um, boosted Adams' score. And Juju, uh, Brandon Cooks, disappointing. Killam Balage, 6.9 points. George Kittle, um, 12.4 points. So not a great game. He did get an end zone target. It was knocked away. Chris Godwin with another disappointing game. And nice game for um, Patsy. I should note, and, and I didn't realize this when I started, Nuts still has Doug Martin uh, playing tonight against Denver in the Monday night game. I'm going to feel real confident that Doug Martin is not going to put up you know, the 27 points or whatever it would be to um, to overtake Eric at this point. So props to Eric on a great season. Great addition to the league. Uh, you know, if a few things have broken a little bit differently, I think he, he definitely could have been in the mix um, for the Panther. And nice season for nuts. But let's move on. Let's get to the matchup that everybody wants to hear about. And, of course, I'm talking about the ninth place game between myself and Bartley. I'm currently holding a 115 point to or 115 point to 94 point edge Bartley still has Philip Lindsay to go I think he's probably going to overtake me my stack of Brady Gordon and Edelman only yielded 25 points T.Y. Hilt my boy continues to play well Leonard Fournette Jalen Samuels Joho just such a disappointment to me on Bartley's side Super impressive from the wide receivers. John Brown, 4.7 points. 1.7 from East Central's own David Moore. 0.3 points from Antonio Callaway. Big number from my Balzac Earth at 35 points. All right, enough of this foolishness. 
In our championship game, we had Tice and Bettis, uh, the two guys with the best regular season records, um, strongest rosters, top to bottom uh, throughout the year in our league. I think both of these guys, as, as painful as it is for me to admit, uh, both deserve to make it all the way to the championship. And, you know, there were certainly some extenuating circumstances going into this game, particularly on Bettis' side. Bettis' roster was really built around Todd Gurley, Julio Jones, and Gronk. And unfortunately for him, going into the championship, all three of those guys were banged up and injured to a different, you know, one degree or another. Gronk obviously went and played, um, put up zero points. I mean, he's just a shell of his former self. He, he just doesn't have it anymore physically. I, I would be surprised if he does not retire in the offseason. Um Julio, you know, not uncommon at all for him at this time of year to be dealing with nagging injuries. Given the fact that they didn't have anything to play for, I was a little bit surprised that he suited up, but still for Bettis that he did. He got into the box early on a short touchdown and then didn't really do much the rest of the game. So disappointing score there. And then, of course, the big one is Todd Gurley. I mean, bet, you know, the single most productive player in fantasy football this year and you don't have him in the championship. I mean, that's just a really tough blow and something that you're probably not going to be able to come back from. That said, Bettis did put up a good fight. Um, Trubisky at QB did not have a great game. You know, Bettis has been relying on those running QBs all year, which I think has been a sound strategy for him and has worked really well for him. Just um, I think coming back from the shoulder injury, I think Trubisky has run less in the last few games. And I was reading this morning that San Francisco played more zone defense than they usually do to kind of keep everything in front of them and force him to be accurate on his throws underneath and kind of march down the field. So that ended up being kind of an ugly game. Adam Humphreys put up, you know, 15 points. He's been a good solid piece for Bettis all year. I did see he got hurt at some point during that game. I don't know if he came back or not. Robert Foster, uh, low floor, high upside guy on Buffalo, uh, didn't get there. Josh Allen had, had a pretty rough game all around James white, 13 points. He's been, you know, his value has taken a hit since Rex Burkhead's come back in the mix. Um, I think we talked about that a little bit last week. And given the fact that uh, the Patriots were playing with a lead, this really set up more as a Sony Michelle game than a James White game. Chris Carson continues to ball out for the Seahawks. He put up 29 points, Bettis' best performer. Had to go with Mike Davis uh, in his flex. So two Seattle backs, which is, you know, not an ideal scenario there once we knew that Gurley wasn't going to go. And then played Miami's defense against Jacksonville, which put up 14 points. So really respectable there. You know, kind of a low score. The, the bagel from Gronk certainly hurts, and obviously the, the injury to Gurley was, was basically insurmountable. But, you know, not to take anything away from Tice, who put up 168.25 points, Huge game from Ben Roethlisberger, obviously, uh, down there in New Orleans. Nice game from Fat Mike Evans, 21 points. Disappointing game from Amari, 5 points, uh, and Zeke at 16.4. This is, you know, when the Amari Cooper trade happened earlier in the year, this is sort of more what I expected um, from the Cowboys' offense. Um, I mean, I think I probably expected more than 16.4 points from Zeke, but kind of, you know, continuing to be a Zeke centric offense with Amari playing more of an ancillary role. Um, obviously Amari kind of unlocked something on their offense uh, for a month or so there. And then the last couple of weeks, they've kind of gone back to uh, what they were before uh, they got him with kind of questionable play calling in the red zone, unimaginative, um, easy to defend. Tampa Bay's defense has gotten better as the season has gone, gone on, but they're by no means a great defense. So pretty surprising in some senses to see those two guys only combine for 21 points. Tice also played Alshon Jeffrey at wide receiver, which I think was a really good play. 
three receptions for 82 yards, no touchdowns, 11.7 points. But uh, in that game environment and a high scoring game against Houston that can be beaten on the outside with wide receivers. I think that was a good play plugged in Damian Williams running back Kansas city played. Uh, he had 27 points in Sunday night, played Evan Ingram at tight end. That was a good play. Played Elijah McGuire in his flex. Also a good play Cleveland defense against Cincinnati at home. Strong play. So nobody, you know, Amari Cooper was Tice's lowest scoring guy, five points. I mean, that's, you know, that's obviously a disappointing result, but, um, held up everywhere else. The other thing that I want to note about a couple things on Tice's side here. Um, one is the quality of his bench. 13 points from Gus Edwards, 17 from AP, 19 from Ridley, 27 from Baldwin, 31 from CJ Anderson, and 18 from Dallas D. I mean, he put out 127 points on his bench. I mean, that's that's really impressive depth. He's done a really nice job of working the waiver wire late in the year, getting on guys like Elijah McGuire, Damian Williams, Gus Edwards. I mean, these are all second half second half of the season pickups. Um, and that is really, I think, what it takes to be able to uh, win the championship. I mean, they always say you can't win your league on draft night. You can't lose it as I did, but you can't win it. Um, and so congrats to Tice there for doing a really nice job of building out the depth on this bench. <clears throat> and particularly with the CJ Anderson pickup uh, with Todd Gurley uh, going down. I mean, I don't know when that happened. I don't know if it was on, you know, waiver wire Tuesday or later in the week. Once we knew more about Gurley, I, I haven't really been paying too much attention to the waiver wire at this point in the year. Um, and certainly just like a complete outlier result, right? 167 yards, uh, nine rushing first downs, a rushing TD. I mean, just a monstrous game from CJ Anderson, but really sharp move from Tice snagging him so that Bettis couldn't use him. Even if Bettis had used him, it still wouldn't have been quite enough to get over the hump. And even if Todd Gurley had been healthy, you know, he still would have needed to put up 50 points or so to catch Tice. So, you know, not, um, not, uh, not a, a difference maker at the end of the day there, but nevertheless, really good move by Tice, uh, kind of boxing Bettis in there. So once again, congratulations to Tice. 2018 MFHT champion. Uh, I want to say 150 bucks coming your way, brother, and I think 75 to Bettis. So for those of you that won money this year, whether it was in the playoffs or, or one of our regular season um, prizes, you need to check your Yahoo wallet. Um, it's not something that I've ever had to do in terms of withdrawing funds from Yahoo because I haven't actually won any money since we started doing this. So that's about as much as I can tell you there, but congrats guys, uh, especially congrats to Tice. We will get a, <coughs> excuse me, we will get a uh, Panther ceremony on the books here pretty soon and um, you know, make sure to, to glorify you there. And, uh, and I'm sure you'll continue to glorify yourself incessantly and insufferably over the course of the next year, which is certainly a right that you have earned. All right, guys, that is all I have for this week. Hope everybody has a safe, wonderful, happy holiday with your family. Merry Christmas, happy new year, and hope to see you guys all soon. All right, cheers, guys. All right, fellas, welcome back. At long last, 2018 holiday grievances coming your way. As we round out our season, as we round out the 2018 year, it's time to look back on the season and reflect on some things that have burned my ass along the way. First up, annually, pass interference in the NFL. Come on, man. Like yesterday's Saints-Steelers game, it was so obvious. Just huge calls going against both teams, really swinging 
the outcome of that game. And we see that in a couple games a year, NFL's got to do something about pass interference. It's just ridiculous that we play this or they play this you know, super physical, borderline violent, potentially violent game that you know is based on kind of beating the crap out of each other. But God forbid that you lay a single finger on a wide receiver while he's trying to catch a pass. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They need to get that right. Holly agreements number two. Coaches getting cute with play calling. My Lord. I mean, this is something that we see every year too, of course. But this year, I feel like it has been just kind of out of control. Whether we're talking about the Saints, you know, running some little trick play with Tommy Lee Lewis, you know, on the goal line. Or the Cowboys refusing to give the ball to Zeke in the red zone. Or, you know, Matt Nagy needing to give the ball to fat guys instead of, you know, they're running backs at the end zone or running wildcat on third and one with three running backs and quarterback out on the, you know, split out wide. It's just stupid. Like these guys just outsmart themselves so much. Why not just rely on good old reliable run through a motherfucker face? Like what is wrong with that on third and one? What is wrong with that at the goal line? It drives me nuts. Another thing Along these lines, I am 100% all set on the Wildcat formation. Like, I never want to see that in the NFL again. I see zero strategic advantage to it. Like, what is the point of splitting your quarterback out wide? Now you're playing offense with 10 guys against 11 defenders. The defense is going to win that 99 out of 100 times. Next, Pittsburgh Steelers. Just their entire team. Drives me nuts. I can't remember the last time that I disliked a team that I have, like, no rooting interest in one way or the other. As much as I hate the 2018 Pittsburgh Steelers, they do less with more, more than any other team in the NFL. It's too much drama. It's too much squandering talent. When you look at their roster across their starting 22 guys, they have like legit top five talent on their roster. We talk about the receivers, AB and Juju, maybe if not the best pair of starting wide receivers in the NFL. James Conner, you know, he's been good filling in for Le'Veon Bell. I mean, they've shown that they can plug anybody they want into that running back spot and it's going to produce. Ben can still get it done when he wants to, when he's not all hung over on pounders of Iron City Lager and Gretz from the night before. Their offensive line is elite. Their defensive line is elite. Their whole defensive front is elite, even without Ryan Shazier. Their secondary is not great by any stretch, but Joe Hayden has played really well. Like, there's just no reason for this team to... Not not have locked up a playoff spot by now. I hate the way they play down to their competition. I hate the way that they're like, oh, we have a big game this weekend, so let's ball out. Like, it's just fucking stupid. I'm sick of that team. Speaking of dudes that I'm sick of, next grievance, the venerable team, F that guy. These are guys... All right, let's just clarify how one lands on team F that guy. Uh, it's not necessarily that these are bad players uh, or guys that have had bad seasons. It's guys that we tend to get wrong when we're making our fantasy rosters. It's guys that drive us crazy. uh, And it's guys that we just generally don't like for one reason or another. So starting at quarterback on team F that guy, Cam Newton, for obvious reasons. Uh, I thought about putting Ben here just because of the inconsistency, but we're going to go Cam. Stupid hats. Too much, too much foolishness with Cam, like off the field. Too much like concern about what I'm wearing. Too much concern about like doing impressions of my coach. Just go out and win games, man. Like, they sucked down the stretch. I don't need to see a quarterback wearing a fancy vest and a funny hat with a feather in it when you can't win a game. Just wear a regular suit, be humble, go out and win. F that guy. 
running back, man, my man Joho Jordan Howard, obviously F that guy. Dude looked like he was carrying a piano on his back all week, like or all year. Can't remember seeing a running back that slow to hit the hole in quite some time. Side note, you know, as I mentioned before, F giving the ball to fatties when they're on the goal line instead of giving it to Joho. RB1 of Team F That Guy, founding member of Team F That Guy, Tevin Effin Coleman. Come on, man. Like, this guy is just a joke at this point. Like, you know, 11 carries for 123 yards and two touchdowns one week. Then, like, 15 carries for 50 yards, no receptions, no touchdowns the next week. Like, I'm just so done with that guy. At wide receiver, Sterling Shepard, a.k.a. the Tevin Coleman of wide receivers. Dude doesn't have more than 40 yards receiving for seven straight weeks. And then he just goes off yesterday. Like, where did that come from? Like, threw with this guy. Also starting wide receiver. All the dudes on the Saints, not named Michael Thomas. I'm looking at you, Traquan Smith. I'm looking at you, Ted Ginn. I'm looking at you, Austin Carr. I'm looking at you, Keith Kirkwood. Throwing the tight ends. Dan Wonder Years Arnold. Ben Watson. Josh Hill. Like, I never want to see any one of those guys ever get thrown the ball again for the rest of my life. Give the ball to Michael Thomas. Give the ball to Alvin Kamara. If you feel the need to mix in a little bit of Mark Ingram every once in a while, fine. But dude, give us our fantasy glory, Saints. Stop messing with us by throwing the ball to these guys in the end zone. Also at wide receiver, of course, the captain of Team F, that guy, Amari Cooper. I mean, geez, guy just, you know, doing nothing in Oakland. And all of a sudden, gets out to Dallas and he's housing 90-yard slants like it's going out of business. Killing me, man. And finally, at tight end, tight end was tough because there's a lot of dudes we could throw in here. Obviously, Eric Ebron has to be in here, but I'm also going to throw in, for Tim's sake, Jared Cook, both of Tim's tight ends that he had a hard time getting right all year. And, you know, who could blame him? It was like every week one of those guys was going off, but practically impossible to tell which one it was. I'm not doing defensive flex on Team F, that guy. Next. Next grievance. Next thing that burns my ass. Dudes that don't play in the side league. Pull yourselves together, man. The side league's awesome. You guys are missing out. Six, post-game locker room dance parties, a.k.a. Club Dub of the Bears, whatever the Saints call it. There's another team that does it. I want to say Indy, maybe, or maybe Baltimore. I don't know. I I have no use for post-game dance parties. Like, what is this? It's like it's you got served. It's like the Bears are serving the Saints. Saints are serving the Bears. Now it's on. We're going to get it on in the streets. Throw down. You know, I don't know. It's like they're doing, like, some kind of musical bullshit. Like, I, I don't need it. Uh, I'm over it. Seven. Seventh and final holiday grievance. All you guys. Not knowing the rules. Like, I got more text messages this year about, like, what are the rules in our league? Scoring. Uh, who, why am I playing this guy in the playoffs and not that guy? Like, can I get a recount? Uh, this is my personal favorite. What day is the draft? What time is the draft? As if I don't send out like six emails over the summer, bunch of text messages. I record a goddamn podcast and tell you guys when the draft is going to be. And (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) Rory just walked in on me ranting on you guys. And, uh, you know, still the day before the draft, like when's the draft? Like what's the buy-in? Like, Jesus, pull yourself together, guys. Uh, but I digress. Anyways, it's all in good fun. I kid, I kid. I love you guys. Love the league. It's a ton of fun. Great times. Enjoy being the commission. Enjoy recording the pod. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. 
So once again, hope you guys have a really happy holidays. And as I think you see in the email, take a look and a listen to the bonus pod or the, uh, the, the bonus holiday grievance that I recorded for you guys. All right. Cheers, guys. Fellas, what up? Welcome to episode 20 of the MFHT cast. I'm the Commish bringing you a special week 17 side league episode of the pod. Have some time off of work this week and thought it'd be fun to do uh, a pod focused specifically on the side league. I want to talk about some, some strategy things that are specific to week 17, which is obviously a really strange week in the NFL. I also want to talk about just sort of general DFS DK strategy some things that I've picked up over the years, um, the last few years playing that uh, hopefully can help us all make sharper rosters in our side league, but also for those of you that are interested in playing in tournaments and and things of that nature outside of our side league, hopefully can help you guys win some money. And a few of you have been getting into that and dabbling in that a little bit. So certainly want to you know, help, uh, help everyone be as successful as they can. And that's sort of how I think of our side league. Like it's a lot of fun to go out and battle each other and compete and stuff. But I also hope that, um, you know, it can be something where we can learn from each other and, you know, get better at, at, at this hobby that we have and, and this thing that we like to do fun, hopefully turn it into some money. Uh, before we get into that, I do have a couple corrections and omissions that uh, I want to get to from the previous episode of the pod related to week 17 side lead, or excuse me, week 16 side lead actions. Specifically, uh, on services roster, I called out Tevin Coleman as what I thought as, as a sucker play, and you guys obviously know my feelings about Tevin Coleman at this point. Uh, I want to note that Tevin Coleman had 10 carries for 51 yards, no catches, no touchdowns, but he did get hurt in that game and wasn't able to finish that game. And so it could have been a really different result for service had he been able to go the whole game. And I didn't realize that when I was recording the other day. So my bad service. Uh, you'll have to forgive me for that one. I still don't like Tevin Coleman, though. Another thing that I omitted and failed to mention was on Tim's roster. He played uh, Gerald Everett tight end for the Rams. And I actually think that that was a really smart play. It didn't pan out for a ton of points, but he did get six targets, five receptions. Not much in the yardage category. I think I want to say he turned it into around nine DK points or something along those lines. But I was reading this morning that the Rams have started to use more two tight end personnel um, with Cooper Cup out for the season. And they've you know rolled out this guy, Josh Reynolds, in his place who doesn't, uh, doesn't quite seem to have it. So they've been playing more two tight end stuff and throwing the ball more to their tight ends in the last few weeks than what we've seen from them in the past. And so, uh, you know, we've talked about spending down at tight end. I think that might have been a smart move there by Tim that I missed uh, calling out last week. So props to Tim. All right. Now, with that out of the way, I want to talk about some general DFS, DK strategy stuff that I've learned over the last few years that I think we can all apply to our games. It's good things for me to remind myself of because I certainly don't always follow um, these strategy tips and, and you know end up uh, getting myself into some bad plays because of that. Before I dig in here, what I, the first thing that I want to know is none of these thoughts that I'm about to share with you guys are original thoughts. These have all come from somebody that I've 
uh, read or listened to working in the industry, you guys have heard me talk about, um, you know, Evan Silva on Roto World. Some of this stuff comes from him. He's a great resource. And Roto World in general is a great resource for like player news and, and you know, if, if guys are going to be missing games and who's going to be plugging in and all of that. Uh, another one of the main resources that I use is um, a podcast that I've shared with some of you guys called The Daily Fantasy Edge. This is three guys in the industry. One guy named Adam Levitan that writes for DraftKings and he's all over Twitter. He is, you know, one of the foremost experts in the, the DraftKings analyst world. Um, also, I think one of the co-founders of the, of the website Fantasy Labs. He does a lot of work on ownership projections and player usage. Uh, he's kind of all over the place. And I think if you're not listening to him and if you're not reading his content, then you're, you're at a bit of a disadvantage on DraftKings, to be totally honest. And the other two guys on that podcast are one guy named Al Zeidenfeld, who is uh, writes for ESPN and has won the Millionaire Maker, um, big time, you know, high money player. And another guy named Peter Jennings, who's, who's in the same boat, a uh, high dollar player. Those three guys uh, in that podcast, The Daily Fantasy Edge, is a great resource. And then the last guy that I'll mention here that I think I've learned a lot from over the last year especially is a guy named Jam Toline who runs a website called One Week Season. He's actually based here in Portland. So really cool to see a guy from Portland um, having success in the DFS field. He's won quite a bit of money playing over the years um, and has quite a following in terms of people that read his his content that he puts out. He, he produces a an overview of every single game every single week of the season from a DFS standpoint it's really really useful I've learned a lot from that guy so um, with that sort of out of the way you know just sort of wanted to mention that in the interest of giving credit where it is due because as I said you know none of what I'm about to share with you guys is you know these are not original thoughts um, and I just want to you know be upfront about that these are all these are all things that I've learned from other people so first thing I want to talk about is uh, running back decisions. And, and I talked a little bit about this on the last podcast, this difference between these running backs that are, you know, what are called game flow independent that play in the passing game and, and play in the red zone versus touch or um, backs that are reliant on touchdowns and yardage to accumulate fantasy points. That's really the starting point, I think, for roster construction is figuring out where you want to go at running back. Um, and ideally, if at all possible, getting three of these game flow independent running backs into your roster it's not always possible I mean, most weeks you know we can find guys at the high end of the salary range that meet that definition um it's often harder to find those guys uh at, at the bottom end of the salary scale and you know sort of for obvious reasons but sometimes value opens up that we're not necessarily anticipating um or sometimes guys just aren't priced up because they're not they're not household names or they haven't been starters for very long. You know, a guy got hurt and they took over or something like that. You know, with James Conner at the beginning of the season was not priced like an RB1. He became priced like an RB1 after about the first month of the season. But early on in the year, you know, he was priced uh, priced down pretty far, to be totally honest. Um, this last week, you know, we can look at a guy like Elijah McGuire that I played. He was priced at 4700 And, you know, he's not any kind of great back or anything like that but we know he's going to get the touches we know he's going to get use in the red zone we know he's going to get use in the passing game and so that becomes really valuable and one of the things that we have to keep in mind at the running back spot is that opportunity trumps talent and that's kind of a tough pill to swallow sometimes because you know we don't want to play a guy like 
you know, Shady McCoy at this point in his career, where it's just like, oh man, come on, really? Am I going to play this guy? But man, if he's going to touch the ball 25 times in a plus matchup, like we can't ignore that if it's going to create some salary savings for us. And, you know, that same, we need to apply that same thinking to the touchdown and yardage back. Opportunity trumps talent. Um, so, you know, a guy like Adrian Peterson, for example, massively talented from a physical standpoint and obviously had a great season. There were weeks this year where he just didn't have opportunity to put points on the board because his team was playing from behind. And, and, and that was a really stark um, thing for that team this year where if they were behind, they just didn't have any use for AP in their game plan. And so that's not to say that we can't play these touchdown and yardage backs. We can. We just have to be really thoughtful about when and where. And, you know, we have to be really confident in our projections around how the game is going to go. So this last week, I played Nick Chubb, um, who is one of those touchdown and yardage backs, in what I thought was a great matchup at home against Cincinnati, who's been terrible against running backs all year. And I think that was a good play. I expected um, Cleveland to you know, beat up on Cincinnati, which they did. They just ended up scoring by throwing the ball. And that's, you know, that's the risky take there. But um, it was a spot where I felt comfortable going with one of those guys that's not going to get a ton of work in the passing game just because I, I, I felt pretty confident in game flow. But projecting game flow is tricky, and it's, it's not something that we want to get into too much if we can avoid it. We want to, you know, as much as possible, stay focused on these backs that are going to, you know, have the ball in their hands regardless of game situation and, and that are going to be on the field regardless of game situation. I mean, there's something... Something to be said for, and something that I think often goes overlooked, just how often is a guy on the field? How many plays does this team run? And of those plays, how much, how many of those plays is that player on the field? <laughs> um, so, you know, Christian McCaffrey, I think, is a great example of that this year, where um, I don't think Carolina was a team that, on you know, ran a ton of plays every game, but he was on the field for almost all of them. So, you know, you just can't get that kind of, consistency in a lot of places so uh just some things to think about at the running back spot next and i'll I'll move through these uh next few you know fairly quickly because i think they're you know fairly obvious for for those of us that have been playing you know some type of fantasy football for several years i mean one one way to access some some upside and some ceiling without um without taking on too much risk is pairing a wide receiver and and a a quarterback. I mean, I think we're seeing guys do that. In the type of league that we play in where you only need to beat seven or eight other guys or whatever, it's not a a requirement. It's not a must-have, but it can be something good to do. You know, we saw Service do this a couple weeks ago with Matt Ryan, Julio Jones. Um, You know, it's, it's... one of the things that you could do when you're building your roster is use like if-then statements. You know, if I think DeAndre Hopkins is having is going to have a monster game, then it's very likely that Deshaun Watson is also going to have a good game. So, you know, that's just one way to kind of eliminate a decision point, basically, and, and, and just, you know, take two decisions and make them one and access some upside there. Then from there, the other thing that you could do if you want to and in situations where it makes sense, is play the opposing wide receiver one. Um, and you can also do this in other parts of your lineup as well, e- even if it's not with your your you know main QB wide receiver pairing. But playing opposing wide receiver ones in games that are likely to shoot out uh, is 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 typically a good strategy. 
um, those players correlate tend to correlate pretty well. So, like for example, this last week, if you were able to build a roster where you could play AB and Michael Thomas, <laughs> um, that probably would have worked out pretty well for you. Um, so, just something to think about there at the wide receiver spot. The other thing that you could do with the wide receiver spot, and and this is a little bit trickier, but um, where we have really narrow target distribution, you can actually play two wide receivers on the same team. So, you know, I talked about, you know, the Saints are, are kind of the, the opposite of this, where they're they're mixing in all of these kind of ancillary pieces that make it really hard to figure out, you know, from one week to the next, who's going to, you know, who are going to be the guys that are going to be on the field a lot other than Michael Thomas, um, you know, and it, it, it's it just makes it tough to want to to roster any of those guys. Even a guy like Traquan Smith, who we were excited about earlier in the year, and hasn't really done much last month. Other teams, the the target distribution is much more narrow. So, like, look at the Vikings, for example. They've started mixing in Kyle Rudolph a little bit more the last couple weeks with their new offensive coordinator. But for most of the year, it was like the ball was going to Adam Thielen and Steph Diggs. So you could build a roster with Cousins, Thielen, and Diggs and just say, hey, look, if Kirk Cousins has a good game, it's there's, it's 100% certainty that Thielen or Diggs are going to have a good game, and it's highly possible that both of them are going to have a good game as well. So just thinking about how the ball gets spread around or not within an offense um, can help us kind of narrow down where we want to go with our plays. Already talked about running backs, wide receivers. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about, tight end. Um, we saw this a bit in our main league this year, the idea of using a tight end in the flex spot. And that's not something that you see too much of in the DFS world, although I will note that a guy just did that winning a million dollars this last, or he flexed in tight end, won a million bucks doing it. Um, and one of the things that I think about if I'm considering playing a tight end in the flex is I want it to be one of the really high-end tight ends. Um, Kelsey Ertz or George Kittle, probably. Uh, you know, possibly Eric Ebron or Jared Cook, but those guys are a little less consistent. So, you know, the way to think about it is, I think, think about a guy like Zach Ertz as a wide receiver one. He has, Zach Ertz has the second most receptions in the NFL this year, regardless of position. He's top 12, I want to say, in yardage and touchdowns as well. So he's Zach Ertz is basically a wide receiver one. This week on DraftKings, he cost 6700 whereas all of the top wide receivers cost more than 8000 So you're basically getting wide receiver one production at a significant discount. So you could take Ertz and play him as your flex, the challenge there is, is that there's really significant opportunity costs with not putting one of these pass catching running backs in that spot. So you have to kind of make, make a decision, you know, do I value this player as a, a you know, independently of other players? Um, and then what is, who am I not able to roster because I'm playing this guy? So like, for example, this week, if you wanted to play Zach Ertz in the flex, he's 6,700 at running back. That might mean not playing a guy like Chris Carson or a guy like James Conner who costs a little bit more than him. And so then you have to decide which of those guys is more valuable to you. And, you know, in a game where we're trying to make predictions in a league that is inherently unpredictable, having the safety 
at that running back spot is really nice because that's you know if that's the spot where it's easiest to project to project usage so just you know something to think about with that tight end flex it can free up um, some salary for you but there is opportunity cost associated with it all right next thing I wanted to touch on um, one other combination of players like correlation of players that we see sometimes that is a lot tougher to hit on that can be really profitable when it does is pairing a partner turner with your defense and uh, special teams unit. So defense and special teams unit gets points for return touchdowns. And then that individual player will also get those points. So if your guy returns a punt for a touchdown, it's 12 points right off the top and adding that 12 point buffer into your roster is just so nice. I mean, that, that can be the difference between, you know, not cashing in a tournament and doubling your money. It can be the difference between first and fourth place in a league like the one, you know, that we're playing in with the side league. So it, the, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that it's really uncommon for it to happen. It's not something that you want to, you know, bank on by any means. I mean, return touchdowns and defensive touchdowns are probably the very least predictable thing in the game. And you certainly don't want to take a guy just because he's a part returner, right? Like, I think this move makes sense when you're talking about a guy like Tyreek Hill, who has value independent of his return role, or Tariq Cohen. Like, Tariq Cohen bears defense. Like, that could be a great play for you. Tariq Cohen's been one of the better part returners in the league this year. He hasn't housed one yet, but um, he's come close a few times. And so, you know, you need to think about it. You know, there's probably, there's probably only a handful of guys in the league that you can really do this with. Um, but it can't, you know, when it hits, it's great. All right. Next. Next thing I wanted to touch on was, and this is, you know, this doesn't matter as much for those of you that are just playing in the side league, but for anybody that's playing in other types of contests on DraftKings besides the side league, you need to understand the difference in types of games and contests that are offered um, so there's two main types of games there's cash games and there's what are called guaranteed prize pools so what we play in the side league is a cash game it basically means i'm putting cash in other players are putting cash in DraftKings is going to take its rake or management fee for hosting our league and then whatever cash is left we divide up amongst us and if we have eight guys play then the cash pool that we're playing with, the pot that we're playing for essentially, is bigger than if we had six guys, right? Guaranteed prize pools are typically reserved for these large uh, tournaments. Well, before I get to that, other types of cash games include head-to-heads. They include what are called double-ups, where like uh, you pay in five bucks and a certain percentage of the field gets paid out 10 bucks, but it doesn't matter if you're in first place or like 500th place. It's like everybody who's in the top like 40% of the field is going to double their money and that's it. Head-to-heads are a ton of fun um, and a great way to sort of hedge off of the tournament entries that you want to do. So something to think about for the future and I could talk more about head-to-head stuff down the road if people are interested. But the big difference between cash games and guaranteed prize pools is that guaranteed prize pool basically means DraftKings is saying we are going to pay out a certain amount in prize money and they have a, a, a payout structure for you know first through whatever based on the tournament size regardless of how many people enter this tournament regardless of it whether the tournament fills up or not so you know if we have a thousand spots in this tournament 
and only 900 of them fill, we're still going to guarantee the prize payout that we've advertised. So that's where you can make real money, but those are obviously, you know, really, really hard to win because you have to beat a ton of people. Um, you know, if you want to win the millionaire maker on DraftKings, you have to beat, you know, 200,000 people. Like, it's just insane. So the big thing that you have to consider is what does it take to beat seven people in the side league versus what does it take to beat you know, 200,000 people or 10,000 people or 4,000 people or whatever. The, the big thing, a couple big things that you need to think about are one, um, in those big tournaments, you need to have a, a, a massive ceiling on your roster. Like you need to think about, can this roster realistically score 200 to 220 points? Cause that's probably what it's going to take. The guy that won the millionaire maker this last week scored 240 points with his roster. I mean, it's just nuts. Whereas in our side league, you know, if you get to 180 points, you're probably golden. Or in some weeks, you know, 160 might win it, or 150 might win it in some weeks. So that that's one thing is thinking about ceiling. And then the other thing is in those big guaranteed prize pools, you need to think about ownership percentage because you have to have a unique roster. You have to have at least, you know, one or two guys on your roster that are really, really low owned relative to the field. You know, talking about guys that are half a percent owned or 1% owned or 2% owned or something like that. You, you have to build a unique roster. Whereas in our side league, I don't think about ownership percentage at all. I don't think about what you guys are doing with your rosters at all. Like this last week we had Zeke. I think five of the eight of us played him. I don't care. I don't care if seven seven guys played him or all eight of us played him. Zeke was still a good play. I was going to play him if you didn't want to. You know, if you were going to go a different direction, that's fine. But I'm not going to worry at all about ownership percentage when we're just playing eight, you know, eight to ten whatever guys. I'm just going to make the best plays. So that's just something to think about for those of you that do want to play in those big tournaments. And I'm happy to chat, you know, offline with you guys if if you're thinking about doing that and you know, kind of talk through different strategy stuff. And you know, side note here. Like, not that I know what the hell I'm talking about, guys. I mean, I think I've put together over the years some some really good tournament rosters. And the thing with these tournaments is, like, you can you can grind on these things for years and not see much of a result just because so many things have to go right and you have to beat so many people. I've had so many tournament rosters where I was like, oh man, this was a really good roster. And then just like one or two things don't go my way in like the late afternoon games and I'm just dead. So, you know, take it all for what it's worth. Take it with a grain of salt. Last couple just general strategy points I want to make. And then I'll, I'll move on specifically to week 17. Big thing, two big things that we need to think about when we're thinking about which players we want to roster the first is range of outcomes so we want to think about what is this player's floor what is this player's ceiling some guys have really nice floor ceiling combinations so think about a guy like christian mccaffrey where you know he's going to catch at least five passes in the game and those five passes are going to go for 50 yards that gives him 10 points right there regardless of what else happens and we know he's going to get some rushing work we know he has opportunities to score touchdowns he also has the possibility of putting up these games where he's going to catch 10 passes, have 180 combined yards and two touchdowns and, you know, score 35 points. So that's, you know, that's what we want with floor ceiling combo. Obviously, those types of players are very rare. So, you know, most players um, you're bringing in either a lower floor or, you know, a lower ceiling 
So like Julian Edelman, for example, is a guy who is going to have a relatively high floor, but a relatively low ceiling. Um, Calvin Ridley is a guy who has a low floor, but a high ceiling, right? Like we've seen games where he scores a couple touchdowns and puts up, you know, yardage, but then we've seen tons of games where he's hardly done anything. So you need to think about as you're building your roster for each guy, what does this look like from a floor ceiling standpoint? What, what are the potential range of outcomes look like? But then also across your roster. Like I, one thing I've been trying to get away from is having, like I want to try to have a mix of types of wide receivers. For example, I want, you know, if I take a guy, like last week I took Isaiah McKenzie, who doesn't have much of a ceiling. I wanted to make sure my other two wide receivers did have a ceiling. Um, if I take a guy like Edelman who has, you know, this higher floor, I might be willing to take some more risk on a guy that's more boom bust in, in another spot. So just something to think about, you know, when you're building your rosters, think about this from a, from a standpoint of range of outcomes for each player and then across your roster. Um, if you, for example, have a highly correlated roster like I had last week where I had Darnold, Robbie Anderson, Elijah McGuire, and Devontae Adams, the range of outcomes on that roster is wider than if I had a quarterback receiver running back and another wide receiver all from different games. Because what I was doing was I was essentially concentrating my risk into that one game. If that game turned out to be a dud, like if that turned out to be like a 13 to 10, just super ugly game, my roster would have been completely shot, right? Like I would have no chance. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Fortunately, I got the shootout I was looking for. Um, but, you know, you, you just need to think through what are the range of outcomes here with this roster that I've put together and where am I putting my risk? And then the last thing to note real quickly, and this is maybe kind of stating the obvious, but one of the big things that we want to look for is pricing inefficiencies. So one of the things that happens every week is pricing gets set and then news comes out, whether that's injuries or whatever, um, that gives us an opportunity to find players that are inefficiently priced given the role that we could project them for. And that's really, especially at the low end of the roster or at the low end of the salary scale, that becomes really important. Like at the high end, I feel like it's a little bit splitting hairs, right? Like if I think CMC last week was 8,800 and Zeke was 9,000. I'm not going to say I like CMC better, or sorry, I'm not going to say I like Zeke better, but I'm going to save that 200 to get to CMC. Like at the high end, I'm just going to take the guys that I like the best. But at the low end, I want to find guys that I think are mispriced um, and that should be priced higher relative to the role that we can expect them to play uh, in that given week. So that's just, you know, another thing to think about there. And I think if you can think about range of outcomes alongside this pricing inefficiency piece, that's when you can really start to get onto some plays that you're really going to like in a given week. And um, those two things together, I think, give us, a, a, you know, potentially a strategic advantage over a lot of players when we go out into these big big field tournaments you know we're, we're competing against thousands of other people because I don't think a lot of people think about those kinds of things or put that much thought into it so you know hope that helps just with uh you know general strategy stuff if you have any questions about any of that you know I'm happy to chat about it I mean you guys know I love to just totally geek out on this stuff the last thing I want to touch on just real quickly and I know this is going on a little long so I want to get out of here 
is some strategy stuff for week 17. So in our side league, we're going to have a 15 game slate. We're going to have the morning games and the afternoon games. I looked into just doing the afternoon games because that's when all of the competitive games are happening, you know, with playoff implications. DraftKings did not put together an afternoon only slate this week because I think they knew that everybody would do that and they would probably lose money in that circumstance. So we'll have the morning games included. One thing to think about in these weeks where in in week 17 specifically, it's, it's kind of a different week. So one way you can approach it is target games where you know players are going to be playing 100% all out because they have to win. Um, and then the other thing is, along with that, is there are hidden gems in these bad games in the morning. Uh, what we want to do is collect as much research and information as we can over the course of the week so that we can understand which guys, which individual players are going to be playing the whole game in those morning games um, and have a chance to do some damage. If we ignore those games, I think we do so to our detriment. They're certainly worth looking at. There's some games that you're not going to be that interested in, but I'm sure that there are going to be individual plays within those games that might be somewhat interesting. So I think that this is really a week to do your research. If you have time, if you have the the desire and the interest, again, as I mentioned before, a few key resources that I would look at. one, uh, this guy that I mentioned, Adam Levitan, who writes you know tons of DraftKings content. If you go to the DK Playbook, where it says strategy and research on their lobby page, you can find his work. He has an article up right now um, around each team's motivation going into week 17, each team with playoff implications, what their motivation will be. So that's a really good starting point. I mentioned his podcast that he does with these two other guys, The Daily Fantasy Edge. That comes out on Thursdays. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Google Play, Stitcher, you know, kind of all the big podcast platforms. It's about an hour long. They break down every game. Well worth your time. And it's it's DraftKings specific. And then finally, um, Evan Silva's matchups column on Roto World, which is not DraftKings specific, but does give you a full overview of every game. He'll, he'll go into depth on some of these guys that we've never heard of that we'll be playing this week. Um, it's a chunky article. It does take a little while to work through. But, you know, again, if, if you want to do the research, those are places that I would highly recommend. If you don't want to do the research, you know, no worries. I mean, shoot, this isn't rocket science. And, and this isn't, you know, I, I mean, none of us are out here trying to be world beaters, just trying to have fun. But, uh, you know, hope that gives you some things to think about. hope that's helpful. Um, if you have questions about it, hit me up. And... I will have the side league up and running for us all within the next day or so and hope everybody wants to keep playing. All right. Cheers, guys.